Welcome to another IFV podcast. Chris Tyndall is a former US Navy officer and currently an adjunct professor at QUT's Centre for Tropical Crops and Biocommodities. In this IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture, Chris talks about the US Navy's Great Green Fleet Initiative to reduce energy consumption and increase the use of alternative fuels by its vessels. It's an initiative in which Chris played a major role as the US Navy's Director for Operational Energy. We hope you enjoy this IFE podcast. Thank you very much, Ian. Uh, I really do appreciate uh, the, the offer of, uh, first of all, if, as the professor. Uh, it's kind of a neat title to have also to add to my um, withering resume, since I'm no longer within, within the Navy. Uh, and as, as Ian mentioned, uh, yeah, so I've, I've spent 40 years within the Navy, uh, both on the uniform side and then also as a civil service. Joined when I was five. That's, uh, that's the dashing part. Um, no, so uh, it's, been, it's been wonderful, though, to, to have this whole relationship with, uh, with Australia. Uh, and as he mentioned, you know, meeting for the first time, uh, going up and seeing the booth there, Queensland and UQ and QUT that were, that were there, uh, and now where we are, um, you know, so many, uh, so many years later. It's been, uh, it's been a wonderful ride, and I'm glad that I'm still on it. Uh, even though I'm not working for the Navy anymore, uh, I'm now still helping in this uh, bioenergy, bioenergy space. Uh, I will say, too, I have to say this, uh, this is the, the fine print. Uh, anything I say is not attributable to the U.S. Navy. Yes, I used to work for the Navy, but uh, I am not a spokesman for the Navy. Uh, I'd be glad to answer any questions, but they will purely be my own opinion, not the Navy's answer to, uh, to anything. We are a global force. The Navy is a global force. And so as we go about the world, we want to be able to tap into all these different fuel sources across the way. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing about that. So this was our major logo that we had last year for the Great Green Fleet. And it was a, uh, as I mentioned before, it's a multinational event. And in this case, this was a year-long, what we call a PR event. We, we highlighted it. We turned on the spotlight and said, hey, look at all the stuff we're doing. It's really this, just the start of the new normal. It means that now, do we still have a great green fleet? Well, we're not highlighting it as a great green fleet. It's just the new normal. We're still using alternative fuel. We're still using energy conservation measures across the board. And I think that's the important thing. So it started back in 2009 is actually when Secretary Mabus, our, uh, our Navy secretary, came out with five very aggressive goals. And two of those goals affected my operation. I was the director for operational energy. The first one was the Great Green Fleet. He said, by 2012, we will demonstrate the Great Green Fleet. And then in 2016, we'll actually deploy the Great Green Fleet. So in this demonstration, this was a three-day event. It happened during the rim of the Pacific exercise. And we, we used, at that point, 900,000 gallons of alternative fuel. Is it 50-50 blend? It was both for the jets and also for, the, uh, uh, for, our, for our destroyers as well, too. Want to point out that we had a Royal Australian Navy helicopter come over to the, uh, to the Nimitz and actually got a drink of the fuel. The commander of the Australian fleet 
after signing a statement of cooperation that we had with the, uh, with the Royal Australian Navy that we had drafted up. He signed it, he got on board the helicopter and, uh, and flew off to, uh, to hit one of the Australian destroyers. You, you've read the paper, the helicopter did not crash, everything was okay, no problems. It was, it was normal operations. That was the beautiful thing about it. It was just normal operations. So, so this is just a, a snapshot of what was happening. I will point out one more thing, though. On the, on the USS Princeton, one of the uh, little side benefits is they looked at the fuel filter on the Princeton before and after using these alternative fuels. Before, the fuel filter was fairly dirty. Afterwards, they saw that it was very clean. So maybe a side benefit would be these fuels are, are actually better for the engines. They're not dirtying them up. And that's, that's certainly a, a big, very positive uh, aspect of that too. So now I'm, I'm advancing all the way to 2016 and the Great Green Fleet launch was in January and it was uh, basically the, uh, the carrier fleet the Sinus carrier group that left San Diego. And this was actually the first refueling that they did that same day after they launched. They, uh, they went alongside the oiler. This is for the USS William P. Lawrence, uh, just one of, our, one of our destroyers. It's a normal everyday operation, and we just happened to have alternative fuel that was in the tank. So that was a, that was a big deal. So later on, that same oiler then refueled uh, a Japanese maritime self-defense force ship. And so this is the oiler. And you can see they, they do have rigs on, on either side. So they can do, as you saw in the very first picture, normally those oilers can, can refuel two ships at the, uh, the same time. Now, I'll talk a little bit further about the vulnerability of refueling. And I'll talk about the fact that we're doing more than just alternative energy, we're also talking about energy conservation measures. And why is that important? If we can get more kiloliters per kilometer, we can go further between refuelings, then we're not vulnerable. Because a lot of cases, many cases, we're tied up alongside the oiler for three to four hours going 12 knots, and you can't waver. So you know where that ship's going to be two hours from now. Well, if, if, I'm, if I'm planning on shooting the enemy, I know that they can't evade a, a torpedo or a missile because they're going to be tied up alongside a, an oiler. Okay? So that is a very vulnerable time, time frame. So again, if we can uh, increase the time in between those, those refuelings, that would be very, very good to do. So here's another picture, another, uh, another perspective of that thing that happened in June with the Italian fleet. Uh, the Italian fleet and their, their particular um, uh, moniker, you see their logo, they had Flota Verde, Green Fleet. That was their program that they were, that they were doing. It was a, uh, in this case, they were able to get it from ENI. Uh, that's their major biorefinery uh, that's there uh, in Venice. And so that's, they were able to get that they used a 5.5% blend, and what they're doing with their Flota Verde is they're increasing 1% per year, and they're going to get up to 10% blend uh, in, I think, 2021. So that's a very, very big 
benefit for, uh, for what they're doing and, and what uh, we're doing with them. And again, this is not just the United States Navy and the Royal Australian Navy. It's, it's a global aspect of what's happening. So in July was a big rim of the Pacific exercise. This is a, the biggest multinational maritime uh, sea exercise. We had, in this case, we had nine different countries utilizing the alternative fuel. This is in 2016. Four years prior, we had two countries, the United States and the Australian Navy. And this is just a, uh, what we call the, uh, the centerpiece of the whole Great Green Fleet effort. Because we were, we, we had 11 million gallons that we were utilizing during this exercise, and it was a, a way for us to show, and again, the PR uh, aspect of that, we showed that this is, this is a multinational deal. So between 2012 and prior, all the way up to 2016, and even more so, I went around to many of the embassies in Washington, D.C., and talked to the naval attaches went and visited countries and made sure that they were okay with the use of the alternative fuel. Because it wasn't just, oh, you just happen to be coming alongside, and oh, by the way, it's got it. We have to make sure that they are, they are okay with it. Uh, in the case of uh, two other countries, Mexico and India had brought ships to, uh, to the RIMPAC, but they did not uh, receive it during the actual, actual exercise. They took 10,000 gallons each and took it back to their country and did further tests, and now Mexico and India are, have accepted the use of that. And that's just in the rim of the Pacific. There are many NATO countries, too, that are also acceptable of these alternative fuels. Germany, United Kingdom, Italy, is, as I mentioned before, France, and France was actually a, a part of the rim of the Pacific exercise. Uh, I never knew that they were on the rim of the Pacific Ocean, but... <laughs> Apparently they are. Uh, my geography is a little off. Um, anyway, so that was a uh, that was a really big deal. Uh, what happened there? So we uh, we even did come come down under. Uh, we we came down to Australia, and we were in Sydney. And in this case, we had uh, the USS Steedham that pulled in. And in this case, we were highlighting energy conservation measures because unfortunately we didn't have the alternative fuel to use. And the only reason for that is that we were going under the auspice that we would only use it if it was cost competitive. We didn't have a successful fuel buyer in the Western Pacific area for us to be able to utilize the alternative fuel. So in this case, we highlighted the energy conservation measures. In a couple slides, I'll tell you a little bit about what those kind of things are. But again, just because we didn't have alternative fuels does not mean that that's a bad thing. It just means that we're trying to underscore the fact that we're, we're trying to do things at a cost-competitive basis. In the case with the, the stuff that we did at the very beginning and during RIMPAC, that was a, a cost of $2.05 a gallon. That's very, very inexpensive for what we were able to, uh, to do and, and purchase that. So this was, a, this was a big deal with the Royal Australian Navy. And uh, later on, a couple of days later, we were here in Brisbane. And we had a, an actual signing of a statement of cooperation that was very similar to what was going on with the, uh, with the Royal Australian Navy. 
okay? But in this case, we have agreed to share data, share research, to, to spurn on the development of, of alternative fuels. Now, why is that important for Queensland? Well, it's very important for Queensland because there is a, a good breadbasket of, of potential feedstocks that are right here in Queensland. And because the Premier is so proactive and wanting to move things forward, that's also why they've, uh, they've said that Ian was going to be the biofutures envoy uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for the state. And so that is a, that's a, a very big, big movement forward. Now, the statement of cooperation is still ongoing. It was a signed piece of paper. It didn't just last for the Great Green Fleet. But one of the other goals that I was telling you about, Secretary Mabus talked about these five goals. The first one was the Great Green Fleet. Well, the second one was that we, we the U.S. Navy, will have 20%, I'm sorry, 50% of our energy coming from alternative sources by the year 2020. 50% by the year 2020. Now, what that means when we've done the calculations, we figured out that we need 8 million barrels of alternative fuel by the year 2020. And that's on a yearly basis. Okay? So are we going to be able to get there? Maybe, maybe not. But it's not just a one company effort. This is a, a, uh, a global effort in, in tr to try to get that. We can't always be going back to Kansas for our fuel. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to transport that all the way around the globe. So that's why we need Queensland. That's why we need other nations to help out. And that's where, that's where this whole cooperation has been advancing what's happening here in Queensland too. So you hear the Premier talk about this whole effort with the, uh, with the U.S. Navy, with the Great Green Fleet and our 2020 goals. That's what that is, is all about. Now, does that mean that 8 million barrels has to come from, from Queensland? No. No. But if there's any significant amount that can come from, from Queensland, then that's, that's, a big, that's a big effort. That truly is. Um, so we, uh, we now want to talk a little bit about the energy conservation measures. As I mentioned before, by using alternative fuel, because it is exactly a drop-in replacement, it does not give us any more, any more kiloliters per kilometer, okay? We don't get any more, uh, or kilometers per, per liter. Uh, we don't get any extra out of that. Because it is a drop-in replacement, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily change the efficiency of the fuel. So where do we get the extra miles per gallon or the, the extra uh, kilometers per liter? Well, we do things like stern flaps, um, and that is basically where we have um, a little extension on the end of the, of the ship, and it makes it more hydrodynamic, and it gives us maybe 1 or 2% higher. That's 1 or 2%. That's pretty large when you're talking about the amount of fuel that we actually use. We do things like put on these, um, uh, this propeller coating, okay? By doing that propeller coating, it again gives us another 1 or 2% more. Um, we do a bow bulb. You see a little bitty bow bulb there that makes it more hydrodynamic. And then, of course, in, uh, we, we also do LED lights as well, too. Those are the hard, those are the hard things that a, a commanding officer, he can't say, no, we're not going to use that, you know, take off my stern flap, take off my bow bulb. He can't do that. But he can affect it through operational procedures. 
steady state transit, trailing shaft, autopilot. Trailing shaft is basically if you have two shafts, you can, you can just let one spin, and then you have the engine pushing through on the other one. In that case, then it's, it's more efficient. In some cases, we don't have to go 30, 35 knots to get to a location. We only need to saunter there at you know, 10 to 15 knots, so we can do that kind of thing like trail shaft. That, though, is a, that is called by the commanding officer to say, yes, we're going to do that, or we're going to do, we're going to do uh, you know, full speed operations. So these are the other types of examples we use with those operational procedures. Now, you'll see in a moment where we actually have shown that we've gotten to a, a point where this new normal does make us more energy efficient. These are some of those, uh, some of those uh, nice numbers to see. The ones that I want to point out, we have 18,000 operating hours worth of fuel saved. That's enough fuel for five ships for a year. That's pretty significant when you have that much of a savings just from these energy conservation measures. Now, again, synthetic fuels don't add to that, but they do maintain that, that interoperability that I mentioned before. Okay? So, again, we're now in what we're calling the new normal. It's not necessarily the Great Green Fleet. Yes, that happens, and yes, we still have that, but we don't have that PR event that says, hey, look what we're doing. Where are we now? Well, just, uh, just last week, on the 1st of October, we started to receive another, another shipment of alternative fuel. In August, we had an award for... Uh, for a 30% blend of, of this NATO F-76 advanced biofuel that we're using for our ships. A very, very uh, good amount. Before, when we did the Great Green Fleet in 2016, it was a 10% blend. It was 77 million gallons that was awarded. So in that case, we had 7 million gallons of the actual synthetic hydrocarbon. Okay? 7 million gallons. Now, we're talking about a 30% blend. So in that case now, we're talking about 18 million gallons. So more than double what we did in, in 2016. Where does, how, how significant is that? Well, when we talk about the overall goal of our 8 million barrels, it's equivalent to 30, 336 million gallons. So that 18 million, we're just over 5% of our goal for 2020. That means we need to be able to do that 20 times in one year. So that's, again, where we need Queensland's help. We need Australia's help. We need the world to be helping us out wherever we can. This is just one company. We have probably, uh, uh, possibly three other companies within the United States that could, that could uh, serve us that. But those are just in the United States, and that would just be for, in this case, this was the West Coast, a, a West Coast uh, solicitation. We have an East Coast solicitation. We have a couple of biofuel companies that could possibly um, fill that order. When we did move to the Atlantic Garrett Mediterranean, maybe we have ENI or Neste fill that. We're in the Western Pacific. Neste has a, uh, has a renewable diesel plant in Singapore. Maybe we can use that. Or we can come and go to Northern Oil in Gladstone. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? 
for those questions that may come up later about, well, what's this new administration thing? Well, as I mentioned to you, it was just a couple of, uh, it was just in August when the thing was awarded and we're delivering fuel in this current administration. One of the things that I am uh, very happy for uh, before I left, we were able to embed the military specification with the biofuel annex that says, okay, we want, we want fuel, we want F76. And oh, by the way, if you happen to have synthetic hydrocarbons, you can offer that up too. So that's buried in the military specification. Very difficult to pull that out. Yeah, we could pull that out, but in essence, all we're wanting is just the fuel. I don't care if it comes from dead dinosaurs, or if it comes from sugarcane, or if it comes from carinata, or pangamia oil, or algae oil. Doesn't matter what the feedstock is. As long as I get my hydrocarbon needs, whether it's synthetic or fossil fuel, I don't care. Or the Navy doesn't care. We don't care. Because it's all mixed in together. It's, it's, a, it's purely a, uh, a replacement uh, across the board. So where do, we, uh, where do we go from here? Well, there is a pathway that the U.S. Navy has, uh, has on, its, on its scope. And I just want to point out that this alcohol jet, you all may have uh, be familiar with that particular spec. That's the JP5 spec, and this is at a 30% blend, is what the um, ASTM, American Society of Technical Materials, and the military have, have said, okay, we'll go up to a 30% blend. So 2017, who, who makes, who makes alcohol to jet? Well, there's a company called Jivo. And oh, by the way, you may have seen the, the news media last week that Brisbane Airport teamed up with Jivo, and they are making Brisbane the biojet capital of the world, my terminology. <laughs> uh, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And so they are using, they're using ATJ, alcohol to jet, in their particular process. It's been approved. The Navy's going to be using it. So the Navy can pull into, uh, can, can land their jets in Brisbane Airport. Odd looking, but we could. Refuel and, and fly off if we needed to. Okay? So I know all of the, uh, the kinks need to be worked out with uh, how Brisbane is, is going to be getting there but GIVO is going to be uh, helping us in that, in that path forward. Now, does that mean that it's only GIVO and it's only ATJ that could be put into the tanks in, in Brisbane Airport? Well, no, not at all. We could very easily be using any of these other pathways that have a JP5 or a jet, jet spec, synthetic isoparaffins. We could be using the catalytic uh, hydrothermolysis um, process. Uh, that comes, comes from uh, ARA, Applied Research Associates, and their technologies that are there. So there is a, a huge, huge aspect of, uh, of what could go into the tanks in Brisbane and in, in other places as well, too. So you see, this is just a, uh, the, the pathway of how we're going to, how we're going to go about it. Now, um, when I first saw this slide, this came from our, our folks down at the Naval Air Systems Command. I was kind of strained. I thought it would be strange that the runway was not straight. But it's one of those things where, well, you know, sometimes there's diversions that have to 
but the plane still takes off at the end. So I don't know. <laughs> However that happens, I don't know. Anyway, they are able to get it on the slide. That's a good thing. Okay, so this goes back to the whole aspect that I mentioned at the beginning, and it's about maintaining our international interoperability across the board. There are many commercial aviation industry folks that are out there. There's commercial maritime, Maersk and others that are also getting on board with alternative energies. So it goes back to the point that, okay, let's suppose that the navies and militaries of the world said, no, we're just gonna use fossil fuel. And let's suppose that we then pull into a port and all you have that, that's available, let's say we, we've landed at, at Brisbane Airport and all the, thing, the only thing you had was a renewable jet fuel and we couldn't use it because we didn't do the, the proper testing. Well, then we would, be, we would be hampered quite a bit. The whole thing about interoperability is also about energy security. Energy security from the standpoint that we want to have multiple types of fuel sources, okay? We want to open up the aperture to as many as possible so that we don't always have to be going back to the Middle East. We don't always have to be going back to South Texas. We don't have to go back to all those oil producing countries, some of which don't necessarily see eye to eye with our way of, of doing, doing business in, and running their country. So if we can come to Queensland, the people here are lovely, and we want to come back and, and refuel our ships and our planes as often as possible. Yes, there are many, many other types of, uh, uh, of, of companies that can put, out, put on here, but the, the important point is this is, this is a, a, a big tip of the iceberg. But I know already, and many of you do, that Virgin is already on board. Qantas is already on board. Here in New Zealand. So they're all putting money into doing the proper research so that they can also be doing the same thing. We've got this going not necessarily just in the United States, but around the world. And I think that's an important aspect of it, that it is a lot about the uh, interoperability across the board. Again, along with that energy security piece. That's, that's really why we're, why we're doing it too. So 2009 in October, Secretary Mavis came out and said, okay, here's our, here's our, our big five goals. Go, go forth and multiply and do great things, Chris and company. So I immediately called up Naval Air Systems Command and said, okay, I know you guys have already been doing some, some work on it, so let's get to a point where we can do a, a big, big event. So on Earth Day of 2010, not by coincidence, but on purpose. We did it on Earth Day. And it was a 50-50 blend. And it was using algae oil. It was using carinata. And it was through the hydroprocessed esters and fatty acid pathway. But it was a renewable jet fuel and a 50-50 blend. And that was a big, significant thing. Many people were there to, to watch that. Um, during that. During that day flight, they also went supersonic, Mach 1.7. Uh, just by using that fuel, does that mean that, well, if you'd used fossil fuel, could you have gone faster? No. It was just normal 1.7. That's what they wanted to do. There was nothing that, uh, that made them go slower, uh, lower, or, or anything else. It was just a normal operation 
but we were testing the fact that it actually could be doing. It could, it could actually work. So that was 2010. We did the Great Green Fleet in 2012. We've done 2016. Well, what else did we do in 2016? We also flew a, another, another plane on a 100% biofuel, no fossil fuel whatsoever. So we've advanced quite a bit. This was using the catalytic hydrothermolysis process from the Applied Research Associates. And this is one of those fuels that I talked about that are in the process of being, uh, they're on that, that, that uh, swirly, curvy runway. They're in the process of being approved. By the end of 2018, they'll have everything, everything done. And that's both for commercial aviation and for military. Well, in the case of military, we tested at 100%. ASTM is, is testing at 50-50. We just said, well, you know what? If we tested at 50-50, we're still going to want to test at 100%. So let's just skip the 50-50 and let's go to 100%. So we saved some money and, and time by, by doing it that way. But we proved that it, that it actually does work. So what about on the, uh, on the ship side? Well, we also did earlier, this was in um, September. In July, June of, of uh, 2016, we actually also tested a, a destroyer on a 100% um, uh, renewable diesel. And that was, that was very significant too. Uh, it doesn't look as neat as this because it's just a ship going out to sea. So I don't have a picture of that. But 100% renewable energy is pretty significant. But you know what? We actually have done that before. We have done that before. We have done that before. Yeah, sail power is also 100% renewable. It's great. I'm a sailor, and it's only because I like to be out at sea and have the motor off and still be moving through the water, which is kind of a nice thing. Anyway, that, um, we have done that before. USS Constitution is still an, an actual active commission vessel in the, in the United States Navy. So we could, if everything else fails, we could always go back to that. <laughs> but probably not. But uh, thank you very much for, uh, for the time and attention. Be glad to answer any questions that you might have. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast. <laughs>